the only way to score is of course to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm joined, as always, by the writers for The Athletic, Amy Lawrence and James McNicholas, and the former Arsenal fullback Lee Dixon. Hello, everyone. Morning. 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 Nice to speak to you. Now, before we get going, uh, we're all missing football at the moment. Uh, it's been, I don't know, what, 10, 11 weeks since we last saw a competitive game, uh, certainly in this country. Um, I wanted to ask what everyone's missing about football. Lee, I'm going to start with you. What are you missing about football? Um, well, because I because I work in football, as in in the TV side of things, they, I actually get a massive buzz when I'm on the way to a game, depending, de- irrelevant of whose the game is. And, and I obviously do a game most Saturdays, most Sundays, um, the odd one during the week. So it, Saturday morning for me is, is, is a proper buzz because I'm, I'm thinking about the game, I'm thinking about my performance, I'm, I'm prepped, I'm ready. There's no real, apart from the fact that I don't have to put any kit on and run out and make a fool of myself, um, I don't actually, uh, there's not a lot of difference with my mindset. I'm excited, I'm looking forward to the game. So that buzz just before um, the game starts and making sure you're prepped and all that lot. That, and I guess that's the same, you know, it's the same for fans as well, that, that expectant sort of nervousness that you have before a game. I still get that at every single game I go to and it doesn't matter whether I'm down at Brighton or Southampton or I'm doing a bigger game maybe up in Manchester or Liverpool. I just get the excitement of a game starting. I do like a three o'clock, but I don't get to go to many of them because obviously they're not on telly. No, no. I mean, I think it is the same for the fans. James, what about you? Yeah, funnily enough, I was thinking almost exactly the same thing. For me, it's about that walk to the ground. And unfortunately, I live within walking distance of the ground and I always walk past Highbury before I go to the Emirates Stadium. And it's just that ritual of the match day, whether I'm going as a fan or whether I'm in the press box, you know, it sort of gets me in the zone. And like Lee says, it's a bit of a, a buzz. You see the crowd, you see familiar faces, you see familiar stalls, you see the colours, you see the fans. And I just miss that whole ritual of the match day. Um, I miss the football too, don't get me wrong. But that's sort of my experience of it and I can't wait for it to come back. It's interesting this because so far none of us are really actually talking about the game and mine is another one. What do I miss most? Mates. I miss, you know, turning up and, and seeing my mates and even seeing people that are not your mates but you kind of know um, in one way or another. There's a guy uh, at the end of our row where our season tickets are who is so moody every time you need to go past him to get into your seat, it's become like an on-running joke for all of us. So it's, it, you know, it's things like that that that, that I think is, is, is great. I, I, you know, miss seeing, uh, like James says, the familiar faces, whether it's getting a hug off Gunnosaurus or, you know, if he, he wanders past or whether it's just somebody that you, you know, you've known over the years and you have a nod, um, you know that you've got shared experiences behind you and hopefully in front of you and then the associated thing to mates is kind of one of my favorite things about football which is hugging strangers so um it's that thing when a goal goes in or something crazy happens and you end up dancing about with someone you don't know i love that so amy when we when we do start up again and it's you you i mean when when i 
when we when I start up again, I'll be going to a game, so I'll still have that buzz, even though there's no fans there. You're going to miss out because yours is based around seeing your mates, and there's going to be none of your mates there apart from the odd one in the press box who's too far away for you to know to recognise. Yeah, maybe. I mean, obviously, I'm really excited about the possibility as soon as it may come to watch Arsenal. And I think that a few of us have had this conversation over recent weeks when we've watched other football coming back or the potential for other football coming back. And it seems pretty obvious to most people I speak to, which is when it's your team, you'd watch them play on the moon through sort of weird kind of psychedelic glasses where you can't even see what's going on properly because you always want to watch your team and you care. Like but when it's someone else, <laughs> but when it's some, you know, someone else's team, watching a game without a crowd is much harder work. Um, if you don't have well, has that, anyone been watching be the the, um, the Bundesliga, by the way? I mean, I watched a bit of Bayern Munich the other day, a little bit of Dortmund. They look great. They play lovely football. But I feel no emotional connection at all. I mean, do we all feel that way? A little bit, yeah. I've dipped in here and there to the Bundesliga and it's nice to have some football back on the telly. But, you know, and I, and I appreciate all the effort that goes into it. It's a logistical feat that they're playing these games. But yeah, I mean, there is a, a big ingredient missing, isn't there? And as you can look at it from a sort of tactical, analytical perspective, but the passion and the emotion as a viewer, it's not quite the same without the crowd, of course. I think um, I think because we're watching uh, foreign football to us, I think it, it, that adds to the strangeness mm. of it because you don't know. Yes. I mean, you might know the players, you might watch Bundesliga every week, but you don't. They're not the ones that you see every week in your in your house. So I think when the Premier League does start, it'll be slightly different because you can associate with the players that you know that you know a little bit about their characters. So I think it brings it home a little bit more um, knowing the Premier League players. So it'll still be it'll still be strange. It'll just be like playing in front of the mural when we had it at Highbury. I mean that was. Weird enough in itself, but we've got the other three sides will be murals instead. Lee, yeah. Um, would you? What? Where do you stand on piped crowd noise? Do you think if you were playing, you'd rather mm. play in a quiet stadium with just hearing your teammates shout at each other, or would you prefer to have that kind of uh, nod towards what it feels like when it's more intense inside the ground? Well, we had a, we had a big podcast chat about this uh, last week for the NBC lot all you know Robbie Musto Robbie Earl Graham Lasso myself uh, Arlo White we all chatted about this and they they the American side of things even though Robbie the two Robbies are English but they're American citizens now they were kind of going yeah they're all for it you know go let's get they can make it you know there's so much technology about they can make it absolutely brilliant it'll be and me and Graham were sitting there just shaking our head going game's gone yeah, you know, we can't we we can't be having fake noise coming in. What? Well, come on, and I, so I'm a bit old school in as much as I think if you try and make it too razzmatazz fake, then it, it kind of becomes more fake. Um, so I think once the game starts again and we've got the first few weeks out of the way, and and the new norm is no noise and you can hear everything, I think that will then become watchable. Um, I, as a player, I don't think I'd like. I don't think I'd like the noise because it, there's something uh, really spontaneous about the noise in a stadium. When you do something, you can almost when when you make a mistake, especially at Highbury. I always found if if, if I made a mistake, I kind of the, the you could count. You can almost count the seconds or the milliseconds 
before somebody says something or the crowd start booing or start going, oh god, Dixon's kicked it out of play again. So there's a kind of there was a there was a natural feel to it. You can you can almost um, you can almost anticipate what's coming out of the crowds, you know, because you're always it always happens and then the crowd reacts. So I think um, if you try to re- the, the the guy upstairs with the with the digital box who's pressing the buttons and doing all that if he's if if that's the where it goes to he's not going to be aware of the, the nuances of that and I think it will then become you know people will be making noises when they shouldn't normally make and I don't know it just seems really weird. weird to me it'll be weird and and certainly James from a comedic point of view I mean I don't know if you've ever worked with canned laughter it's just awful it doesn't work I mean yeah, it really does that good it comparison yeah, it has a similar feel, I think. I think you've it? you've used more can laughter than most, to be honest with you. You know what, Lee? Stony. I can't. You're so predictable in so many ways. But thank you for doing that for me. If you're asking, if you're interested, I, I, I was thinking about the things I hate about football. I genuinely don't like at all. I was watching Dominic Cummings' speech yesterday in the in the uh, in the in the garden of Downing Street, and somebody was trying to heckle him from outside with a vuvuzela. And I hated. What <laughs> they were, you can hear it. And I hated the. Vuvuzela, and I thought, oh, I miss the Vuvuzela. I miss the noise, that ridiculous noise. I'm missing VAR, if I'm totally honest with you. I'm even missing Mike Dean. <laughs> so wow. maybe that's too far. But I genuinely miss all of it. I miss the stuff that annoys me, and I miss all the stuff that you guys have been talking about, and the buzz, which is, you just can't get watching Augsburg against Schalke in uh, the Bundesliga. <laughs> I should say, listeners, that we are recording this on the 26th of May. Uh, As any Arsenal fan knows, today is an auspicious day. Uh, 31 Mm -hmm. years ago today, at this time, Arsenal fans were getting in their cars and driving 200 miles up the motorway. No doubt taking a toilet break, Dominic, but let's not get into that. Uh, Arsenal (laughs) won 2-0 at Anfield to give us fans the greatest day I think most of us have ever experienced. And I know... Three of us have got kids, but, you know, it was... Uh, I've got two kids. We've only won one league title at Anfield with the last kick of the season, is all I'm saying. And I should say also, by the way, I, um, I don't know if I've told you this, I used to have 26589 as a password for all my electronic devices in the house. Not uh, really. I, you yes, changed it now. Uh, well... <laughs> I should hope you know, so. They don't know where I live. It does. I have changed it. I have. We've won more, we've won more trophies since then. Uh, anyway, we did have Mickey Thomas on a couple of weeks ago and we did talk and have talked extensively about that night. Um, but one of the things we did want to talk about uh, today was uh, Forgotten Heroes, because I think it is more than ever. It is a squad game. And I was watching the replay of the 89 game last night. Martin Hayes came yeah. on. Martin Hayes. It, 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 honestly, it had completely gone out of my mind. I imagine, Amy, you hadn't forgotten that with the film and all the rest of it. The same with you, Lee. But... I suddenly, and my son was sitting there watching it with me. He said, who's that? I said, Martin Hayes. I'd I'd completely forgotten that. And I think we do feel, we do sometimes forget those people around the squad, don't we, Omi? Well, the person for me, when I think of of 89, um, who is my real sort of, I wouldn't say forgotten hero, but sort of understated hero was Kevin Richardson. And actually, it was funny because ITV uh, showed some extended highlights of the game the other night. And um, having worked for so long on the film, we became so used to the edit that, that we put together and the particular bits of action that we, we used to demonstrate what was going on in the, in the match sequences. But watching it in kind of more real time like that reminded me how brilliant K- 
Kevin Richardson was that day. And Liverpool had a, a really, really good midfield with, with McMahon and Nickel. You know, not many got, you know, got a handle on them or could even Ronnie compete Wheeler. with them. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, Kevin Richardson with Michael Thomas. Michael Thomas was rampaging around like a, a bit of a madman for quite a lot of the night, actually. He had this real, very, very energetic, really sort of souped up, determined, crashing into challenges vibe. And Kevin was just mopping up quietly. And every time the ball came, came to him or came near him, he just tidily swept up and gave it to somebody in, in a position where they could kind of take the play on. Um, very seldom lost possession, was really clever on the ball, was always in the right place. His reading of the game on the night was first class. And I, I've, I've seen it said by some people that Kevin Richardson was man of the match that night. And when you think about the, the, the legends that people associate with 26 of May 1989, Kevin Richardson is not usually that high on people's list. He was, a, you know, he was not the guy with the biggest kind of uh, uh, star quality, um, with the biggest sort of uh, way of conducting himself as a personality where people kind of didn't even really know that much about him. And, um, but I, I have so much uh, love almost for, for what he gave to that team because I think it wouldn't have happened without him. It was interesting. It was a pointless a few weeks ago where they asked for the team from uh, 89 and Kevin Richardson was in fact a pointless answer, James. Mm. Um, who comes to mind uh, for you? It's a really tricky one, you know, Unsung Heroes, because take something like 89, you sort of feel like, well... If they win the medal, if they win the trophy, you know, then I think Arsenal fans certainly do remember them. But I think that there are players who have contributed to our success who maybe haven't been quite as heralded as others. I mean, one who jumped out at me from the 18... I watched the game the other day um, as well on ITV, the 89 game, the highlights of it. And I do think John Lukic is someone who is a little bit yeah. forgotten by Arsenal yeah. fans, partly because... As we spoke about the other week, he was followed by David Seaman. And David Seaman had this huge legacy and this sort of, you know, long period in the Arsenal goal. And it kind of overshadowed Lukic a little bit. And he came back later on, didn't he, as a, a reserve. And I think people, you know, maybe younger people remember him more like that. But he's a name who I think probably doesn't get cited often enough uh, in Arsenal history. Yeah, Lee, I mean, these guys in the dressing room, you've got the main guys, say Tony Adams, uh, and and say Alan Smith who scored one of the goals, but it's a squad game, isn't it? When you started, when you started playing, it was less of a squad game, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, you know using fifteen or so players that season sort of summed summed up how the how rotation was, summed up how team selection was. You know, you were it was very much old school if you were fit. And you had hold of the shirt, and you didn't have a nightmare. You played the yeah. following week, yeah. um, and it was very much George was, you know, you, you that's your shirt. You keep it until you have a stinker, and then we'll then we'll I'll, have, I'll give you a couple of games, and then if you're still playing bad, we'll swap it round. But did you, you know, prefer it that way, Lee? Just out of interest, from a player's point of view. Yeah, yeah, because it's in your hands. You know, there's nothing worse than than selection being taken out of your hands by. The manager going, you know, I think you need a rest. I think you're looking tired. I think you, you know. I remember, I remember um, Arsene telling me, pulling me to one side once. Um, I think it was in, it might have been in '98 season. I can't really remember what season it was, but I was, you know, I was flying. I felt really great and I was fit as anything. And he pulled me to one side. He goes, um, 
it was about a Tuesday, he goes, I'm, and he didn't like confrontation. He wouldn't look at me in the eye. And I knew I knew it was coming, so I was trying to I was trying to make eye contact because I wanted to put him through the mill a little bit if he's going to leave me out, <laughs> and he's got to be uncomfortable. Yeah. And Arsene goes, "I'm I'm I'm going to rest you at the weekend," and I went, "What? Why?" And he goes, uh, "You you you look tired," and I said, "I'm not tired." And he said, "I've I've seen your numbers." I said, "Well, you haven't seen my numbers because we haven't got." Um, we haven't got GPS yet, so that's before <laughs> GPS. So, what numbers are you looking at? Um, yes, you know the fitness things, your sprints. You look a little bit because he—that's one of his, one of his assets was he's, he. Although he didn't actively coach as such as I mentioned before, so move concentrating on individuals moving around. He would stand back and watch the training session of the eight v eight and watch every single player individually for a period of time so he would be assessing you all the time about how you're looking whether you're giving the ball away what's going on in your life da, 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 da. so at some point when he goes I'm leaving you out and I was like I'm not having that you know because now it's been taken out of my hands if you're under George you were kind of playing I'm playing well I'm doing okay I'm going to play next week and then you get worried obviously if you have a few bad games or there's a few bad results but I definitely prefer to have it old school but you can't do it now the game the, the the game is that much quicker the pitches are that much harder that you get more injuries you if you play constantly on those pitches you will start to pick up yeah. repetitive stress stuff and then you need to be rested anyway so that's why uh, one of the reasons why it's changed i mean amy uh, lee mentioned 1998 there i was looking through the squad and some of the numbers, um, I mean, only six players played more than 30 games in the Premier League uh, for Arsenal in 1998. And and some of the players who played quite a few games, Alex Manninger, Christopher Ray, Gilles Grimondi. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I mean, I mean, it never more of a squad game than than uh, that sort of season, that, that season in 98, I would say. But they were all players who did vital things that season, you know. Yeah. Um, if you come in and you contribute, uh, I don't know if those doubles would have been won without those players. When Christopher Ray came in, he scored three winners uh, in a row, I think, in matches which finished 1-0. Yeah. Um, when I think we were uh, a bit down on strikers, I, I think perhaps Ian Wright was injured. He also um, missed 300 chances when he had before that. So that's <laughs> another point. <laughs> Do you remember that game at... That, there was a game at Wimbledon where the floodlights failed. Yeah. He scored a 1-0 in, in the, I think, rearranged game of that. Scored in the FA Cup there was, a, there was some dodgy betting syndicate situation and the floodlights failed at, uh, at Wimbledon and the game was, was called off, remember? Mm. But I was watching, I was watching mm. that Manchester United game in, uh, um, when, when David Platt scored the winner. Gilles Grimondi was playing in the centre of defence in that game and he didn't really get a lot of love from the Arsenal fans. But I guess, Lee, you're, you're um, in the dressing room. You know the value of these players. Yeah, I mean, we we always we, we were comfortable with them being in the squad because we knew exactly what Amy said. They come in and make you know make appearances and 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 change games. And when you've got players who do that in all departments, Alex Meninga came in for David Seaman and was remarkable at times. Um, and so there, there was always a there was always a a reliance on them during those important parts of the season, but also a, an understanding and a. A relaxed feeling about them coming in because they would they would do a job. I, I I have to tell you, and you've probably heard this, but when you mentioned that game, Amy, about the floodlights going with with um, Ray Parler and coming out coming into the dressing room, and you know the story, <laughs> don't you? Go on, Lee. <laughs> so uh, Arsene, because it was straight after half time, we went back out, 
and our son had been to the toilet and he was coming out the toilet as we came back into the dressing room and he was like, what is the matter? In his beautiful French accent. And Ray Parler went, it's a berm. <laughs> <laughs> and we all waited for the for the boss to say it and he looked up and he goes, a berm? <laughs> and that was the end of that story. We're all in hysterics. So and the game was called off, but Ray was typical. Uh, typical wanted to get a joke into in there somewhere. Um, but yeah, they, they all did. They all did really important jobs. And um, like my, you know, like uh, Martin Hayes and and um, and Perry Groves and, and and you're right, Amy. I'd have to go back to Richo. Richo was definitely man of match that night and um, and if you look at his contribution to the you know I get a lot of plaudits and Alan Smith and Michael Thomas for the goal but without without Kevin Richardson taking it off Barnsley and without John Lukic the two people you mentioned that goal wouldn't have happened so we, we got the, the sharp end of it but they deserve huge and he just got off the floor with huge cramp in his calf so you know he could hardly run when he took the ball off, off Barnsley. Uh, uh, James, um, mm. I wanted to ask about oh one oh two as well. Yeah. I was, I mean, do you know we used three different goalkeepers, and they all season? got winners' medals. I think Dave Seaman, Richard Wright, and Stuart Taylor all played. I think more than ten games. Yeah, that's pretty incredible, isn't it? I don't think that's happened again since. I mean, injury problems were a big factor in that, but they're a great example. I mean, Stuart Taylor made a a really important con- contribution to that season. Others did too. I mean. You forget someone like Oleg Luzhny, for example, played, I think, 26 games across all competitions that season. Uh, you know, these squad players were a big part of things. I was looking forward even to 2004. You know, Pascal Sigan, one of the most sort of <laughs> lamented players of, of recent years, I think played 14, 15 times, 10, maybe 18 10 in times. the Premier League. 10 in, Ten the, in Premier the Premier League. League. There you go. Yeah. So it was part of the Invincibles campaign, even him. So you get a lot of these characters who make really solid contributions and... Yeah, I suppose some slip through the net, but uh, it's good to pick them out where we can. Do you think positions affect how players are perceived? Like, I mean, you know, now everyone talks about fullbacks all the time, but do you think for a long time, Lee, that fullback was a bit of an unsung position in some way? Oh yeah, no, no one wanted to play fullback. It was kind of oh. run out, of, run out of positions to play. I was sticking back there; it'd be all right. <laughs> um, but when you're talking about um, unsung heroes, for me, in in the time I was at Arsenal, and and I, I guess it's a wrong description, unsung hero, because he was always, he was always enveloped, if you like, in the back four. But Nigel Winterburn's kind of yeah. status in the game, forget, forget what what the fans thought about him but within the game he was renowned for being one of the hardest fullbacks to play against and I can't remember ever and I'm saying this hand on heart I can't ever remember him getting beaten I'm not sure I think but probably Bex had the run of him because he didn't have to get past Nigel mm. he just opened himself up and whipped an amazing ball in they'd score and then he kind of oh the fullback didn't stop the cross but I've never seen anyone run past him. I've never seen anyone um, do a trick and, and beat him and, and, and lose his head. He he was always available. Um, he was. It's like he's a bit Dennis Irwin. I mean, Dennis Irwin was a proper quality player and perhaps had a little bit more flair on the ball than Nigel because he took free kicks and penalties and scored goals. But they were they were in the same ilk for me. They were like right name. If you if you went round to all the players I played against and with over the years and say name the two best left backs that that you you can think of and um 
that they would probably both be in the top three, Nigel and Dennis Irwin, without a shadow of a doubt. It seems crazy, doesn't it? He got two England caps, Nigel, I know. despite I know, his mad. consistency and his longevity. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, Lee, you're talking about um, players rarely getting the better of him. The other thing we wanted to talk about uh, today was opposition players uh, that we perhaps secretly admired. I saw Ryan Giggs get interviewed and was very complimentary about you, talking about the distances. You always got the distance right. You weren't too far away from him. You weren't too close to him so he could turn. And it, I, I'm, I'm assuming you watched that interview and uh, and you've seen what he said about you. Yeah, I wrote it for him. You, <laughs> <laughs> well, you wrote it very well. He was very nice. But there must have been players that even though you didn't particularly like playing against them you did admire when you were on the pitch oh I mean I, I loved you know I, I would have loved um, David Ginola to 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 play or play with David Ginola I mean it had been a, he's just, he was just such a brilliant silky lovely footballer to watch um, and he was one of my favourite players to play against because you know I'd, I'd kind of worked him out I'd, I was one of the few that did and um, and I enjoyed the the challenge, um, always knowing that if I was slightly off my game or I just let my concentration go, he would he would rip me and then score. He was that good. So, um, but I would love to have had him in, in been in the same team as him. It had been a dream to play with. Um, so, the, him players, lots of. I mean, uh, the one that sort of ticks all the boxes for most hated player, hated played against him, didn't like him as a person, but magical and would play in any team and played in a position that really was very difficult to play against as a, as a back four or an individual was Teddy Sheringham. You know, I, I think Teddy was one of the, one of the best players and the, and the exponents of that number 10 role. And he was so hard to play against. And he, but the fact that he was Tottenham, he was just so yeah. horrible. He was a horrible person on the pitch. And we have a laugh about it now. And, you know, I play golf with him every now and again. And, but he was horrible. You know, I really didn't like playing against him at all. I didn't like his, you know, he's always moaning. We'd always have rows. He was just horrible. Who was more horrible uh, uh, from the player's point of view then Sheringham or Van Nistelrooy, because both seem deeply unpopular. Well, I, to be fair, I, d- I don't, <laughs> I don't know Van Nistelrooy. I never played against him. I kind of left by then. But I just looking at him, I don't like him. You know, he's just. <laughs> I w- I'd love to have been in that game with Martin. I really would. You know, oh, but I, I, I think you were I there in him. spirit, Lee. To be honest with you, <laughs> I, I, we all, I mean, it's interesting. It's different for the fans, isn't it, Amy James? I mean, is it? I mean, are there any players, Amy? There must be players you like watching, but it's hard to to like them. Certainly, when they're playing against us, it's just a nightmare, isn't it? Well, it's funny because I, I think this this idea kind of popped into my head again on on, on this auspicious of days watching um, that extended highlights of '89 again, and just remembering putting myself into my teenage shoes and remembering how much I thought John Barnes was unbelievable. Like yeah. in that in the late '80s. Uh, it felt like there just wasn't anyone like him around at all that I had seen. And um, again, putting in that context of not having access to watching all of the world's football at your fingertips on on a, a YouTube yeah. or whatever. Um, so you were much more familiar with, with people that you saw in your own league than anywhere anywhere else. But Barnes was just, just seemed a different kind of player. Um, his His technique, his power... 
his speed, his dribbling. Uh, he could do absolutely everything. And he was, he had a, a cockiness, a confidence about the fact that football looked so easy for him as well. Mm. But I think secretly, probably everyone in that time thought, God, I wish John Barnes played for us. Yeah. Um, I bet you wish that most of all, Lou. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but in hindsight, it's interesting because, I, I, you know, I think that the whole tactical masterclass of 89 was really inspired by George Graham's respect for John Barnes. The whole going to a back three or five or however you want to describe it was about trying to push Barnes and Houghton back from kind of causing havoc down the wings and supplying uh, opportunities to their centre forwards. So, um, yeah. Barnsley would be would be one that's always kind of got a golden glow. So more you go through the years and there's different people who you played against and it kind of makes your jaw drop and you think, oh wow. I, for, it was a memory when Arsenal played Fiorentina at Wembley in the early days of the oh, uh, oh. Champions League. But but Batistuta was Goal. again one of those where you just you thought, wow, watching a player like that kind of rip rip the team apart. Um, Lee, did you feel that way? <laughs> Yeah, it was, it was on Nigel's side, wasn't it? So it wasn't my fault. <laughs> yeah, for yeah. Once, James, for once, it wasn't my fault. James, what about you? Anyone um, in particular that you love well, watching? Yeah, and, and, and someone probably I think the Arsenal fans generally love to hate, and with good reason because he scored against us relentlessly. But right. I always found myself casting envious glances at Didier Drogba yeah. in yeah. his time at Chelsea. I mean, just a, a fantastic centre forward I mean he was kind of a Roy of the Rovers centre forward but for the Premier League era and some of the things he could do the power the athleticism the finishing ability and I was talking to Amy about this just the other day we were saying in some ways what was most frustrating about it was that he was a guy whose career started relatively late you know he only made the the, the grade in France at the top level at about 24 and a lot about him made him look and feel like a classic Arsene Wenger signing in some ways. Uh, mm. But it was at that time where Chelsea had the money and we really didn't. And he ended up at Chelsea and he really, really hurt us over those years. Philip Senderos has never really got over it, has he, to be fair? When we were chatting about that, uh, James, I think it was interesting. We were making the comparison between Drogba and Diego Costa and mm. how is, what, what's the difference? Why is it that if you probably ask most Arsenal fans, they'd say... Actually, I really did quite like Drogba, although he caused so much pain. But n nobody could... You, you wouldn't want Costa in your team, would you? You could want Didier Drogba in your team, but could you want Costa in your team? Well, yeah. I, I would. Yeah, tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, tomorrow. <laughs> Absolutely. All day long. He'd be just, really, he, Amy? He would, you'd literally just take all your problems to him, saying, look, I'm having a bit of a problem with this lad on the left. Can you just go and beat him up for me? And he would just go walk over and do it, and it'd be brilliant. So he put all the fires out for you. Yeah, I, I'm with I'm with Leo on that one. I mean, Luis Suarez for me. Um, I mean, I know he's all sorts of issues, biting and all the rest of it. But he played a pass in front of us where we were sat at the Emirates, round the defender into the path of Jordan Henderson, who ran on and put it about 15 yards over the bar. And the look of <laughs> disgust on Luis Suarez's face when he did that. But the pass, it was just it, it swished. It made that noise off his boot. You know, when you when you really mm. connect with the ball properly and it just sounded beautiful and looked beautiful. And I had to stop myself clapping. I mean, I genuinely had to stop myself clapping because I'd have got dog's abuse from everyone that, sitting next to me. But... Stoney, Stoney, that is, the, that is the, the line of the podcast this week. You've come up with it again. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know that sound when you've perfectly struck one off your boot 
yeah. as if you've ever perfectly struck one off your boot. Once, Lee, once <laughs> I hit one, and I, that's how I know what that sound is. And I, uh, I still remember it 35 years later, but I no, I, I could hear it the way... Thank you, though, Lee. I could hear it the way it came off. His, it just looked beautiful, okay? And it was a genuine moment of joy for me. <laughs> Can't believe you doubted that I hit a ball perfectly once. Once, Lee. But okay, fair enough. I get it. I, do you know what? It was a shot from 35 yards. I hit the bar and everyone oh. clapped. Everyone clapped because they knew what had happened. But that was, that was, that was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> when you say everyone clapped, who, 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 which, yeah, who's everyone? Who's the everyone? It was the, all the players on both sides. They knew wow. I'd caught it. It was just one of those. And we all stopped and watched it fly See, towards the goal. You're saying that 11 opponents all stopped and clapped your shot. Yeah, maybe I dreamed it. Um, anyway, um, Lee, it's been, uh, uh, in the main, a pleasure talking to you, except when you doubted the veracity <laughs> of my shooting statement. Uh, lovely to talk to you, Lee, as always. Uh, thanks for joining week. us. See you next week. See you, everyone. James, I've mm. been reading... Uh, you wrote this week, along with Tom Warville, you wrote a piece uh, entitled How Mikel Arteta Should Remodel His Team. Uh, now, I have to say, it's a very in-depth piece of writing laid out in a very matter-of-fact way uh, what is essentially a huge task facing Mikel Arteta and Arsenal. Yeah, I don't think he can just read that and then uh, <laughs> he'll know exactly what to do. I mean, it's a tricky <laughs> discussion because... Um, Nobody knows what the transfer window will look like no. and to what degree it will exist at all. I mean, that's the big caveat around this whole discussion. Uh, but there are certain things that we do know, and that's that there are contract situations that need to be dealt with. Arsenal have got a lot of players who are one year from the expiry of their contracts. We know some of the, the big names. Aubameyang is one, Saka is another, but there are others too. I mean, Louise, Socrates, Mustafi... Arsenal really need to make decisions on these players where they can and ensure they don't lose more people for free and ensure they keep hold of valuable, valuable assets like Bakayo Saka. I mean, really, if I had to sum up Arsenal's next transfer window in two words, it would be just that, Bakayo Saka. They've got to do everything they can to keep this kid. I mean, Amy, this this piece, it, it, it went through from goalkeeper through to the forwards. Um, there's not a lot of grounds for optimism except perhaps the young players. It's just so difficult because uh, James and I did a, a thing the other day, like a mailbag thing on The Athletic. And one of the questions, which was, I thought, a really good one, which is, you know, when can you actually reasonably assess Mikel Arteta? And when you stop and think about it, you think what a mad, bizarre introduction to management he's had um, to come into the team or come into the club uh, on the back of a really difficult period where... Lots of you know, the kind of emotional turbulence that have preceded his arrival. Um, pick up this dressing room that you know, had a load of players who many of them had their reasons for being quite upset and disconnected uh, with the club. Results weren't great. The team had enough issues that everybody knew about, hence not being able to finish in the top four for a couple of years and and so on. And trying to get hold of all this stuff like seeming to make a bit of progress uh improving the atmosphere and like a couple of months later football stops in an unprecedented way and he gets ill it's the first one like that people know about in football um and then having to come back and try and work remotely with 
players that he's still trying to get to know. So working on combinations within the team, if you're going to try and make a decision, OK, so we've got David Luiz, Socrates and Mustafi all with a year, how many should we keep? Um, at, given their age, their profile, their personalities, etc., etc. But if you're trying to work on maybe combinations between different defenders or a defender and, it, and his fullback or a defender and the midfield players in front of them, you can't do any of that remotely. Um, so it's, it's odd, to say the least. Uh, and I, I think that we've got to just give him as much time as is reasonable to try him. He's going to have to make ruthless decisions based on some kind of hunches, really. I mean, obviously, he knows the players to a degree, but he hasn't been able to try as many things as he would like. I mean, even think about, he's, uh, he's, has he been able to see Kieran Tierney play a game, for example, when you're thinking about your left-back situation? Uh, you know, it's complex stuff. And, you know, within the context of Saka and the context of Kalasinac and the context of other players who might, uh, uh, come in in that position or the context of um, Cedric Suarez who potentially can fill in, in that. he's never played either I mean it's really bonkers so I don't envy Arteta having to try and do the, these things I, I would like to think that he's focused on the you know not so much those kind of contractee situations and he's got to obviously trust people you know, in board level to get that sorted. But he's got to think about how he wants the team to play. And if there's players who are not in, in the squad that can bring qualities like that. We were talking about Patrick Vieira the other day on the pod. And, you know, anybody who, who listened to that will probably agree you'd kill for a player like that. Um, you, well, you, you'd certainly give a few limbs. Are they looking for players like that in the moment or are they too busy worrying about other things? But a kind of a dominant midfielder would seem to me, as I've probably banged on about for a decade, virtually every summer, as, some, as something that should be a priority and it doesn't always turn out that way. But it could be something that transforms at Arsenal. Well, uh, if you want to read, uh, listeners, if you want to read uh, James uh, and Amy's pieces uh, in The Athletic and all the other content uh, that they offer, uh, there's a 90-day free trial, which is still going on. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. That's theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod to sign on to your 90-day free trial. I mean, one of the things you were talking about there, Amy, um, you and James, you answered some of the questions sent in by readers and listeners. Um, I was having a look at one. It was sent in by Rohan B. Again, this is not particularly um, joyful. <laughs> he just asked, do you think that if the team continues to perform at a mediocre level on the pitch, we will actually see Arsenal's popularity and overall reputation drop to a level of Everton or Leeds? I mean, I thought it was a good question. I thought you answered it very, very well. But, I mean, it is a worry, is it not, James? Yeah, I think it definitely is a, a concern. And Arsenal, I think it particularly applies on the international front. And Arsenal are very fortunate. They've got massive following uh, globally in Africa, Asia, America. But a lot of that is built upon the success of Arsene Wenger's first 10 years with the club uh, when the Premier League was massively expanding internationally. And if you look at the way a club like Manchester City or even the resurgence of Liverpool and their global popularity at this point, you know, Arsenal are going to fall behind a little bit there. And I know it's not something that maybe domestically here in London we connect with all the time, but 
that stuff really matters. You know, it matters to the revenue of the club. It matters to the international standing of the club. It matters to how players perceive the club from from the exterior. And I think if you, it, it's a very easy thing. Look at Liverpool. What happened to them in the nineties when they kind of slipped down the league? Look at Leeds. You know, if you are a mid-table club for long enough, there are serious repercussions for that. I mean, I heard Jermaine Jenis talking about Everton and asking the question, what is the point of Everton? In the sense that they would always finish, say, 7th, 8th, ninth. But is that really what we want from our club? And, and, and Amy, it must be a concern. Well, I think to say what's the point of a football club is frankly ludicrous. Well, I understood what he was saying, though, that, that well, if you're supporting a I club I think with 40... Well, hang on a minute, Amy. If you're supporting a club, 40,000 people turn up and their and their highest aspiration is to finish just behind the six richest clubs in the country. I mean, is that is that enough to keep people going? I don't know. You have to ask yourself why you go to football in the first place. And I'll spool round to where I started, which is mates or part of the fan experience. Now, granted that a lot of the way that I feel about that is based on being fortunate enough to start going to football and having that kind of communal sense of being part of something when it was cheap, uh, when almost anybody could go with your pocket money. Um, that's not the case anymore. And, I, and there's a bigger question here about the next generations of fans, which links into what Rohan's question was about and how you develop those next sets of fans if you are kind of, it's a bit of drudgery going on. But, you know, the club's history has been full of Period, quite long periods of pretty crappy football. Um, the, the, you know, the the mid seventies were not great. The mid eighties were not very exciting. Uh, even for a, a little bit of the mid nineties, Arsenal were underwhelming. Uh, in between the sort of latter George Graham and and Arsene Wenger time, um, you know, I think you have to look at where Arsenal are now. It, it is a lull in terms of being. Um, very competitive and very exciting uh, and that's tough and, and I think that everyone in the club is really really aware of that but I, to say what's the point I think well what's the point of doing anything if you're going to have <laughs> that sort of attitude obviously you, you really want to be uh, thrilled and engaged and uh, full of hope all the time but that you know football can't be like that for 20 teams in the league but if people do feel like that and some fans do feel that way then it does present Arsenal with a problem because they're not necessarily you know the very elite certainly financially who are going to be right the, at the very top of the table and I, I'm, I'm of the same mind as you Amy I think there's obviously and I think Ian is as well that there's much more to supporting a club than just whether you win but the way the Premier League is constructed now it is almost impossible for certain teams to win it is but I think I think the question is you know is a slightly different one in the sense that if you're only going to try and win the league uh, or you think that that's the only thing that's important if you're a fan who goes and you're not enjoying it then that's one thing but of course because football being what it is you can't just change clubs that easily or at least most people don't so the the question you might have is am I going to not bother going or not bother watching rather than shall I go and support a different team 
And some people I know have decided to go and support lower league teams because they've just fallen out of love with the modern day football experience. And I can understand that. But what is much less common is a fan turning around saying, oh, I'm going to give up my season ticket, but I think I might get one for another club, let's say. <laughs> so you're dealing with people who are either going to, going to be a fan or, or not, or going to watch it or not, if you know what I mean in football, I think, generally. But the bigger issue, James is absolutely right, is the global one. Where if you are a bit mid-table and you haven't got very many exciting players, it's much more difficult to generate new fans overseas because they're all going to go for the more um, attractive more thrilling sort of teams and players that are out there yeah and I think you know by its very nature I mean a lot of overseas fans are incredibly passionate in some ways more passionate than fans at home they get up at crazy hours or whatever to watch the games but kind of the bigger your audience or your fan group gets the more inevitable it is that there are elements of that that are more casual and those are the ones who you potentially stand to lose. Well, I didn't want to be quite so downbeat, but um, <laughs> uh, no, you know what? It is worth discussing, isn't it? Really, because I, I suppose I was asking the question in the context of the Premier League and the and the um, the gap between the haves and the have-nots. And I guess Rohan's question, which is what how we originally started this discussion, was: Could we become almost one of the have-nots? If we're not careful, that's, I guess, what he was uh, wondering. It's also interesting, you know, we talked about Josh Gronke and KSC last week, and I think there is an interesting comparison to be made with American sports, which I don't follow closely, I must admit, but where you have things like a salary cap, you have the draft system that in theory is there to engender competition, right? So Everton, in theory, in that system, who knows, they might finish... 12th one year and third the next whereas the Premier League the way it's structured financially and the way it's structured in terms of promotion and relegation which I think you know we, we love that aspect of it um, it does also kind of inhibit that fluidity of movement for, for teams up and down the table yeah yeah. Um, OK, before we go uh, let's find something cheery um, if we can have a song from each of you. Uh, we've been talking today about forgotten uh, or unsung heroes and also about players we admire from other teams. Uh, Amy, have you, do you have a song? I was trying to think of a song and then I just kept thinking about songs to do with um, what's going on in the news at the moment. So they're all to do with cars and driving. <laughs> um, and uh, I just thought, madness, I like driving in my car. Yes, but we all know what those reasons are. Um, James, what about you? <laughs> Uh, do you know what? I mentioned Didier Drogba as the opposition player I really admired. And there is a song by a British artist called Afro B called Drogba. Um, it's like a sort of hip hop dancehall track. And it was big in America, as far as I understand it as well. But it's from a couple of years ago. And it's a, it's a decent little track. So I'll go for Drogba by Afro B. All right. I'll have um, uh, a song from 1986 I'm reading. Uh by a group called Amazulu. I don't know if you even remember this, called Too Good To Be Forgotten. It's quite a happy little tune, and uh, I'm, um, I'm having that. Um, thank you. God, you've chosen a song I saw. I like this. Must be a first. 
<laughs> well, Stoney, wow, what's happened? I don't know. I don't know. I, it's, it's 10 I, can weeks I, in can lockdown. I, can this be a moment where everyone applauds? A bit like, you know. <laughs> One time in my life, I'll catch a shot well and choose a song that Amy likes. Um, <laughs> we have been the Handbrake Off podcast. Thank you very, very much for listening. Thank you to Amy and James. Nice to see you guys. Good to chat to you too, yes. mate. See ya. And also thank you to Lee Dixon, of course. And thank you to Teo, our producer. We will be back next week. Stay safe. See ya. Thank you.